The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Actually, even the lawyers on SVB were watching the Oscars as they were doing their work. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a and great this is like My, my timeline is like, I literally went up to Summer saying it's half financial crisis and half Oscar dresses. <laughs> it's a very strange <laughs> oh <my> Monday. <laughs> Happy Monday, Francine. Happy Monday. It's been a pretty wild few days for financial markets around the world, but all kicking off last Thursday with what I think I'm right in saying is the biggest, fastest run on a bank in history. I mean, it's incredible. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank was swift and it was brutal. And really, it still left much of the world wondering what could come next. And I'm, I'm going to be honest here. I actually hadn't heard of Silicon Valley Bank <laughs> before this. I think, what, what is it? Like the a 19th biggest haven't. or something. But it's not a household name around the world. But it 16th is 16th biggest, I think. 16th biggest, right? Um, it collapsed in uh, just a matter of hours. $42 billion was pulled out by investors so we thought we'd better do a bonus episode of In The City because we really want to explain what's happening, why this happened with such amazing speed last week, what regulators have been doing over the weekend to try and stop contagion and where we might go from here. Yeah, it's been a crazy, crazy four days. A very busy weekend for the Bank of England and the Fed, where basically they've taken extraordinary measures to stave off this deeper crisis after the bank's failure. And the UK unit was then bought by HSBC for one pound under a deal organized by the BOE. I'm David Merritt. I'm Francine Lacroix. And this is In The City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the stories and the voices at the heart of the City of London. A busy weekend, not only for regulators, but also for our Bloomberg reporters, who we are very lucky to have joining us uh, this morning. We've got Mark Bergen, who covers venture capital uh, for Bloomberg News. And then dialing in from New York, we have our Wall Street reporter, Shanali Basak. Welcome, both of you, to In The City. Thanks for having us. Yes, yeah, so nice to be here. Shanali, do you want to start from, uh, from your perch in New York? You are immersed in all the news from Wall Street. How, how have the last few days been? It's been pretty shocking because remember, Silicon Valley Bank, this was a darling of the industry. So the fact that they couldn't find a buyer for it is equally remarkable. It was a very dramatic weekend in which there was everybody and their brother, sister and mother looking at this bank to see if it was a viable thing for them to buy. And ultimately what happened was you had a massive, pretty unique government backstop late Sunday night. Um and everyone, wherever they were, really put down what they were doing to see how this was being handled and to see how much the government was really worried about future bank runs. So, Shanala, can you bring us back to Thursday? What exactly happened? There was basically a run on the bank. Why? A few things happened at the same time. One is that Silicon Valley Bank had disclosed to investors kind of the extent of, you know, the pain they were feeling from these sharp moves in bond prices. Remember, the value of their bond portfolio fell really dramatically and they had to sell bonds to meet deposits. But then they also announced the plan for a capital raise. If you're going to raise money in this fragile market, it needs to be for 
reasons that show growth. But the market got really spooked by this capital raising plan and really started to ask questions about how much strain Silicon Valley Bank was under. And on Thursday, it was disclosed later on that $42 billion were pulled on Thursday. Thursday alone, really. And so this is just a dramatic bank on the run that happened very, very quickly after those fears were really compounded about Silicon Valley Bank. So just to put that into context again, so 42 billion in one day, that's never happened before, Shanani, has it? That sort of speed with which that amount of money could be pulled out of a single institution. Yeah. And remember, Silicon Valley Bank is still very much, it was an FDIC insured bank. And so people ask a lot, how is this different from Lehman? How is this different from Bayer? Well, those were big securities institutions. This was a very classic bank. And it was a banker to, you know, startups across the country, into Europe, of course, and to a lot of other types of folks, entrepreneurs, Napa Valley wineries. uh, And that was really what caused a lot of the fear in its demise, what would happen to those depositors should it fail. And of course, it did fail. Uh, And Mark, this, of course, is the only publicly traded bank focused on Silicon Valley and on startups. So the collapse ripples through both the tech and finance industries. What was the sense of panic actually on that Friday? Yeah, it's it's interesting that it's it's not well known maybe in financial circles, but in in Silicon Valley, Michael Moritz is the one of the uh, partners at Sequoia and the Sawyer Legend in, in Silicon Valley, he equated it in the FT to a death in the family. Uh, and it does sort of feel that way for these companies. They were not just a bank, but it was like uh, it invested in a lot of venture capital, uh, venture debt. It, you mentioned it was I, I learned this this weekend that they were also investing in wineries. Uh, what a clear example of sort of the abundance uh, of Silicon Valley uh, that just kind of um, zapped overnight. Uh, so there was a, a chief concern for a lot of the, both the venture capitalists and startups this weekend was meeting payroll uh, today. Um, that was, you know, there were the scramble to uh, pull deposits if they could from uh, or transfer them into money market funds. Uh, this real concern that a lot of these these startups who have a lot of m- that are raising money um, but could not pay their their employees, could not pay their cloud bill. Uh, I think everyone was sort of scrambling for a worst case scenario. Um, and then in, in Europe, we saw, you know, S- SVB does have a branch in the UK. They've expanded a little bit to the continent, but um, not as big uh, of an impact here, but certainly a lot of reverberations around uh, the tech sector. Many of these companies had, I talked to some that had excess of 95% of their money in, in Silicon Valley Bank. So a death in the family, an extraordinary thing to say about, you know, the demise of a bank. So th- with them gone, though, with the actions that we've seen over the weekend, uh, from the US regulators and the sale to HSBC in the UK this morning, um, does that avert this crisis that you just mentioned, you know, that, that these these startups won't be able to make their payroll, that they've somehow grind to a halt? Has that been averted? I think I think there's two, two open questions now, sort of what happens in the US, what happens going forward with the bigger questions around how are venture, how are venture capital funds going to work, right? Like for, for, for the long time, we had this low interest rate environment and a lot of uh, the stocks in the US were these dominant tech companies, uh, we'd seen this just during the pandemic boom, right? These companies raising um, multiple, these valuations well beyond what their revenues were, uh, the companies that were not profitable for years. Uh, I think there's going to be a really clear question about whether uh, whatever s- banks step in to replace SVB will be be willing to do that. Uh, and certainly HSBC uh, is a very different, maybe slightly more conservative state bank here in the UK. 
Morgan, and some of the things that often we forget is that if you're a small startup or a medium-sized startup, in a lot of cases, you have one bank account. So people who also want to take their money out, it wasn't, you know, you weren't sure where they were going to put it. So there was a scrambling around of, you know, some of the, the bigger banks trying to open bank accounts for them. There was the, in in the UK. There's also so these neo banks, Revolut, Wise, um, Monzo, are the ones that may, maybe temporary winners. It's unclear if if they're going to be long term um, winners. My my guess is that the, the more traditional banks will probably be like the safer bet um, for a lot of these companies. Um, Shanali, is this the as bad as it's going to get? I mean, we've seen a second bank fail also since this run on Thursday, and everyone, I guess, is asking. What other problems are out there? You know, we know the bigger backdrop here is about uh, rapidly rising interest rates. Is there a sense that this is as uh, the biggest bank failure, or are there more problems coming down the line for the financial system? If you look at how banks are trading, there are certainly fears in the market that there's still going to be more issues. Among the big fund managers I talk to, they expect more bank failures certainly in the next six to 12 months, if not in the next couple of weeks. And remember, this is actually three bank failures in the U.S. in the course of five days. First, you had Silvergate say it would liquidate. Then you had the Silicon Valley Bank put under receivership by the FDIC. Then on Sunday night, you had also Signature Bank being closed pretty suddenly and pretty rapidly. And now the banks that you see that have been under pressure since that are the likes of a First Republic. First Republic is so interesting because First Republic has a wealthier client base. And the initial fear here was that a lot of those clients had accounts above the $250,000 FDIC limit. Well, the government just came out and said, well, wait a minute, all of your deposits are 100% insured. So why worry about something like that? Um, I think there are a lot of psychological issues that uh, are kind of baking in in terms of how and where people keep money, especially because there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, finite amount of systemically important bank banks as defined by the United States. And then everything after that, there are big questions. Remember, even with the government backstop now, guys, the FDIC, the deposit insurance fund, has a finite amount of money. And above and beyond that, they have to go borrow money from the Treasury Department at a time where the U.S. government is worried about the debt ceiling and the debt limits. So what is uh, the financial firepower behind the United States to keep on saving depositors in instances like this? I know, Shelley, but if the U.S. can't do it, and this is like the Treasury basically as the ultimate backstop, right? So first of all, there is a peculiarity in how the SVB problems came to light. And now if you have the Fed and if the FDIC saying that all deposits, including, I think, uninsured deposits, and effectively, you know, removed all MTM haircuts from collateral that banks can get used to these new facility and the discount window. I mean, this is pretty lock solid. I don't, you know, why is the market reacting so badly to this? I, I understand the longer term concerns, but it seems that they've done a pretty good job in saying any deposit for the moment is actually guaranteed through this. And we're still seeing selling, right, in bank stocks this morning in First Republic. You mentioned, I think, again, this is a fast moving story, but 60% down their stock was pre-market this morning. Why? Doesn't anyone believe that there's enough money to backstop the whole system? 
I think Jason Furman at the Harvard Kennedy School puts it a good way that nobody should be happy about this. The system failed. These are these uh, these are still emergency actions. And it kind of goes back to what I said. What are the worst case scenarios? The Federal Reserve and its kind of sister institutions in the United States was able to step out with this very clean response. But to the point that Fran is making here, one of the parts of the response is this, that as they provide kind of these emergency loans, if you will, um, in lieu of the discount window to banks that need the funds, they're doing it in a way that doesn't account for the the current value of the bonds held as collateral. What does that do? That changes an entire market dynamic. That There's a worry here that banks will potentially be mismanaged because they're not going to be managing their interest rate risk well. Um, the way that Charles Myers over at Signum Global puts it to me is that this creates a moral hazard that banks would loosen credit quality and their asset portfolios to detract depositors. So people are really worried about a lot of things, the short-term implications and the long-term implications for these banks. In the short term, like I was saying, there is a finite amount of money when you look at the federal insurance fund. So if, you know, every bank were to fail tomorrow, that won't happen and it shouldn't happen. And <laughs> but but you know, if there were more banks at scale to fail, there is a finite amount of money that the US government can pay for it. And above and beyond that, it gets difficult, complicated, and could involve the taxpayer. And in the meantime, I guess equity holders and bondholders will get rinsed. Right. And that's the other part of this, too. The government just told you that we're protecting depositors. But if you have securities in these banks, we don't care about you right now. And so that is very different from 2008, where there was some level of protection for the people who invested in banks. So the case for banks moving forward is really interesting. I want to go back really quickly to what Mark was saying. Also, I remember so vividly a conversation I had in 2017 with a Goldman executive on Silicon Valley Bank and how they felt about all of these loans extended to the venture community. And that that, the Goldman executive told me he was very, very concerned about it because a lot of the larger banks were very hamstrung for most of the last decade when they were lending to unprofitable companies. What Silicon Valley Bank did changed an entire market dynamic And you have to wonder where the money comes from moving forward, not only with them gone, but with now a lot of these other banks under pressure to monitor their risks. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. If Goldman spotted that there was a problem, you know, why didn't regulators spot that problem sooner as well, that this bank was overextending and in with the backdrop of rising interest rates? Do you think this really is a failure of regulation here, um, that it wasn't spotted sooner? So it's interesting. Remember the last decade, everything was rosy. Nothing went wrong. <laughs> and so it's not even the loans that sunk the bank. What sunk the bank was kind of a mismanagement here. They had people and people pull deposits for a lot of reasons. Deposit pricing at other places is much higher. People knew the regional banks would become under pressure. They didn't manage their interest rate risks and therefore had to sell bonds at a huge loss. So there was the management of the bank being one question. It wasn't the loans necessarily that they extended that sunk them. But to the point that you're making on risks, the risks did compound when the rules got 
less tight between, say, 2017 and today. There are reasons that the rules lightened. It's because if you're a massive bank in America, you can foot the costs of compliance from being a highly regulated bank. But if you're under that Fed threshold of $250 billion, you have a different set of rules that was supposed to allow you to compete with bigger banks. So the equation was never really simple. You could see it on both sides. But now the criticism is definitely compounding that maybe the rules should have been tighter after 2018 to prevent crises like this. So, Shanali, basically in 2018, which was exactly a decade, 10 years since the financial crisis, then-President Donald Trump signed the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act into law. So, basically, that's what freed up these mid-sized firms like SVB for some of the strictest post-crisis regulations and really could cut their compliance costs, right? That, that, is that what it goes down to? Yes. So that's a big part of it. And that was under Vice Chair Randy Quarles of supervision at the Federal Reserve as well. So to the point that you're making, this could get pretty politicized pretty quickly. Was it the fault of the deregulation under the Trump administration? And by the way, I had plenty of people texting me throughout the weekend also saying, are the Dems going to come under pressure as well because of what's largely seen as a bailout? If not of the banking industry, then of the venture capitalists that lobbied for the bailout of Silicon Valley Bank. Tough questions that are looming large, a lot of anxiety, including among people who never cared about banking before. I mean, one of the motivations here to save this bank, though, or rather not save it, sorry, to save its uh, depositors um, is because of how important private equity venture capital is to the not just to the US economy, but to the to the global economy. We've got some stats here around uh, the importance of private equity to the US economy. It invested more than six trillion in the US in the 10 years through 2021 employs nearly 12 million Americans. So what is the fallout here? If SVB was so critical to that ecosystem and that economy, what does it mean going forward? Um, Are we going to see a a less dynamic uh, venture capital and private equity industry in the United States? Venture capital and private equity were already under pressure coming into this environment. Uh, this was more applying to venture capital than it was to private equity. When you think about Silicon Valley Bank, private equity has been able to raise so much money because they are able to lend privately. And by them shifting into credit markets, they've actually been huge beneficiaries from these bank failures because now lending is constrained in the American economy and globally, and private equity firms can step in in a bigger way. But for venture capitalists, a lot of the companies that they back don't make profit. They don't turn a profit. And so that was always a riskier client base for banks. There was always constraints until the last several years where there was much more pressure to bank these firms that then went public and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, there's going to be a strain on the venture capital community as well as its portfolio companies. And by the way, you lost three banks dedicated to crypto uh, more actively in a matter of five days. So the crypto industry could reel pretty significantly as well, which is, of course, a big part of venture capital. So, Mark, how do you see this evolving? Uh, that's a really good question. I thought Sonali's point about about crypto was a, a, a really key point. I mean, I think it's so interesting that at least here so far in, in the UK, there's a sense that, um, you know, the, the, the government has talked about trying to be a science superpower. And so that was the argument, I think, over the weekend from the sector that if you let if you let this sector lag, if you let these companies and mostly in fintech and, and life sciences fall apart, uh, how are we expected to be competitive um, globally? 
Yeah, I, th- I don't. I mean, I think there's all there's certainly been you know the Silicon Valley has not done itself a lot of favors politically, um, and and the sentiment in, in tech, I, I think the, the broadly at least in, in the U.S. like around tech right now is is not. Um, Something where uh, I, I think it will be fascinating to see how it plays out politically. It's, you know, we've, we've seen the past six years, right, and where it's become this uh, political football, uh, and and politicians on both sides have been able to point to Silicon Valley and its sort of excess. And so I, I don't expect. I think that'll only get louder. And you know, HSBC have this morning have, as we've said, bought the UK arm for one pound. But I think you alluded to this earlier, Mark. You said, you know. They're a different sort of lender, of course, to SVB. And I'm wondering what that means for the UK startup scene. I, I guess there's a reason why those startups didn't go to HSBC in the first place uh, for their banking. They went to SVB. So what's going to change now is it's going to be a little bit more risk averse, surely. I think so. It's hard to say how much of the they didn't they chose to the bank based on their products and services offering, but or based on uh, uh, we saw as we saw this weekend, you know, despite the fact that that tech sort of prides itself on being contrarian. It does tend to have a herd mentality. Um, so maybe they all banked because, and, and they often talk about, they use the language of ecosystems, right? I Which, heard it was like a badge of honor if you had an SVB bank account as a startup. I was think that that's right. I mean, a... I think that, I think there's certainly like aspects to being tailored to this this type of industry and sector that are certainly beneficial. And I think there are some concerns that that uh, w- wouldn't happen with, with HSBC. Not as and, funky to have an HSBC. Yeah. And, and in the UK, it's a lot of in the, some ways. Right. Um, a lot of of the leading tech companies here are, are, are fintech companies, and so they certainly are going to have a lot stronger feelings about HSBC than than just a, a boring software company might. Right, and at the end of the day, the Bank of England and regulators managed to find a buyer here for SVB UK. They did very smooth, and right? they Over didn't the do right in like less than seventy two hours, and they didn't do so in the US. So they can really only be applauded. And I don't know what happens, Mark. I mean, the longer term implications of access to capital for the UK, where also the Chancellor is saying, look, you know, we want uh, healthcare companies, we want tech companies to be the basis of our growth. I mean, the ecosystem is maybe not as solid as it could have been, you know, had this not happened. Yeah, I I mean, my sense is that there are, yes, other forces, Brexit clearly is one of them, uh, and, and other political decisions that probably have had maybe bigger impacts, but this certainly is not... Uh, it's not helping, and 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 biotech and healthcare is a really fascinating sector because it's one that it, it's not profitable for a long time, not necessarily for the same reasons that some say a software company might be, just because it clearly it requires a lot of investment and research up front in order for to like maybe a five ten year time horizon and actually having um, profits. But that could be uh, transformative. Charlotte, can I ask you actually one hot take from someone who keeps on messaging me? With, with great thoughts is I can't believe it's MBS again. I can't believe it's the mortgage-backed securities again, which were hold to maturity, so not marked to markets. I mean, this is what plagued us in 2008 without making too many parallels. Like, why are we here again with mortgage-backed yeah. securities? Yeah, that's, that's, I'm glad you asked that. If you look in, in the market is not, um, what do you call it? It's not blind to this issue as well. If you look on Friday, for example, or Thursday of last week, some of the sectors that were selling off hardest were actually not the financials. It was real estate. And people are really worried about real estate because remember, one, the banks are going away. Number, that's, that's one thing. And also the, like, the rates have really crushed the ability for people to afford homes. Plus, there's a really distorted supply demand dynamic. Uh, 
going on in the country right now in which, you know, the p- prices have gone up really quickly and prices can go down very quickly as well. It's, it's pretty amazing how volatile the mortgage market is. And this time around, the weirdness of the whole situation, Fran, is think about how much the banks have stepped back from the mortgage market. These are not the packaging of mortgage-backed securities. These are private investors now that have infiltrated the mortgage market in a large degree. And there are a lot of questions about, or non-banks, frankly, sometimes fintechs. Um, and so there are a lot of questions about the structure of the mortgage market and the longer-term ramifications here. And by the way, I, we're learning fast and hard that the mortgage market, given that insurance companies and banks still hold so many mortgage-backed securities, and many of them are agency-backed, there's still a connection. This is all interrelated, and we acted for so long like it wasn't. Chanel and Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Yes. Till the next bank run. Yeah. <laughs> what, tomorrow? Okay. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back later this week. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. This episode was hosted by me, David Merritt. And me, Francie Lacqua. It was produced by Summer Sardi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. And special thanks to Shanali Basak and Mark Bergen. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.